reading our study this morning is in Luke 20, verses 1 to 20. You can find that on page 1049 in the Pew Bible. So we're continuing along in our study in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, For those of you that are visiting, we're just walking through the Gospel of Luke um, a section at a time, uh, studying God's Word together week by week. And um, so this morning brings us to Luke chapter 20, verses 1 to 20. We're going to actually read the text as we work through it and study it. Um, So just a couple of questions here, kind of rhetorical questions as we get started, and then I'll pray, and then we'll dive in, Um, just to get you thinking about some of the things that are addressed in this text that we're going to study this morning. Do you know the experience, um, the experience of leverage on your soul to compromise or to not be completely truthful? If If you say no, there's got to be some something leveraging on your soul right now um, to deny that. Um, so if we're all honest with ourselves, we've experienced this before. Maybe we experience it on a weekly basis, maybe even a daily basis. Um, there's this pressure on our soul to not be completely honest with ourselves sometimes, with God, with others, um, and we compromise as a result. So it could be relatively small, I put small in quotes on purpose, Um, relatively kind of ordinary day-to-day, where on the phone somebody calls, I'll be there in five minutes, and you know it's 12. You know it's going to take at least 10 minutes. Why do you say five? What's the pressure on your soul at that moment to say what you know is not true? Um, it could be something like, did you send that report? Do you try to do a verbal dance that, well, let's see if I can, can kind of dodge this bullet without actually being honest. Or you just lie and then you go right to getting after it on that project and, or that, that report and sending it out. Or it could be something pretty major. I mean, those are all major. Um, They're all important, significant, but it could be some major compromise of integrity at work or with your finances or with your faith. So the question is, I think we all know that dynamic, those pressures that leverage on our souls at different times. The question is, why? Why do you feel that pressure? in those moments? What's it stem from? What's, what's actually pressing on you that you would give way and lie, compromise, be shifty? Well, usually it boils down to either fear or desire. It's actually fears and desires are two sides of the same coin. A desire is a fear flipped on its head, and a fear is a desire flipped on its head. Did I say that right? Okay. So the reason why you, you don't say, I, I didn't send it out yet, is because you're afraid of what that superior might say or do. 
and the kind of fallout from your failure. So if you can lie and cover your tracks, then you can make sure you avoid that feared consequence and impact, right? And it's because of a desire. So let's say you say five minutes to your spouse or to your friend or your you know, client, and it's really 12. It's because you desire for them to not be angry with you, to not yell at you, to not, you know, be disappointed with you again. Okay? You see, we're afraid of things, we desire things, and they leverage on our souls, and oftentimes, even though we know what's true, we don't tell the truth. So the question is, how? How do you actually live the truth, believe the truth, live the truth, tell the truth? Where do you get the power to do that? And this passage actually points us in that direction. So let's pray, and we will, we will dive in. Father, we thank you that we can come to you this morning, that if we are in Christ, if he is our Savior and our Lord, that we can come with confidence even though even though we're all guilty of not being true, not being true to you, not being honest with ourselves, not being honest with others. Lord, we can come confidently because of the blood of Jesus Christ that was spilled to cover our sin and to cleanse us from the unrighteousness of it all, to give us a reconciled relationship with you and be at peace with you so that when we do give way to these temptations and pressures, we can just own it and repent and be forgiven and cleansed. And yet, Lord, it's so easy to, to dance around and to blame shift and justify and blow smoke screens and um, not live authentically. And I pray that the Lord Jesus, who is the truth, the way, the truth, and the life, His true words in this text and then his death that followed, dying for all of our falsehood, all of our compromises and lack of integrity, all of our sin, that the power of the gospel would change us and strengthen us and shape us from the core, inside out, so that we would live as people who are not afraid of the wrong things and don't desire the wrong things, but fears, our fears and desires are actually shaped by your grace, that we would fear new things and desire new things, that we would be able to be true and honest and real and authentic, regardless of what kind of pressure leverages on our soul at any given moment. So, Lord, make us real by your grace. Make us authentic. Make us true and upright. Help us to reflect your 
truth, the beauty of your truth, the firmness, the strength of your truth. So we thank you that we can come to you in the name of Jesus, Father, and we thank you that there is grace to be had for our falseness, for our inauthenticity and our hypocrisy, that we can find grace for that at your throne of grace, to find mercy and grace to help us in our neediness. So, Lord, please give us that grace. Give us insight as we study your word. Open our eyes to see what we should see in your word. Incline our hearts to your your word this morning. I pray that you would um, help us to focus and be attentive to you and to your word. Drive away the distractions, and I pray that this would be us standing before you, listening to your word and receiving it humbly and responding in faith to your wonderful grace and your vital truth for our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so Luke 20, um, we're now in Jerusalem in the flow of the narrative. We just ended last week a major section, which is the middle of the book of Luke, from 951 to 1948, which is the journey. Um, It's marked off in 951 when the days were approaching for his ascension. Jesus was determined to go to Jerusalem. And so he's on the way, the whole way from that point until 1948 when he actually arrives in Jerusalem. Last week we looked at the the triumphal entry as it's often um, talked about. So after the triumphal entry in Jerusalem, which actually, by the way, let me humbly be corrected and correct myself here. Last week, I, I kind of carelessly parroted a commentator who said, um, you know, there's no clear ind- indication that, that it was on a Sunday, the triumphal entry. Um, actually, Phil came up to me afterwards and said, well, what about this and this? And so I looked in a little more on Monday and found that the commentator also wrote carelessly, and I should have not spoken carelessly. So most likely it was on Sunday before his death. So thank you, Phil. Um, Welcome that kind of Brian-like feedback all the time. So um, on the way to Jerusalem, and you see the expectation was um, at that time this Messiah would come and set up his kingdom, and, and even before that, there was a lot of this expectation kicked up with John the Baptist because they knew that there was going to be a forerunner, right? There was going to be someone who came before the Messiah making ready the way. So the way of the Lord was made ready as he came to his temple to reveal his glory that people would worship him. Okay, Isaiah 40 says this. Malachi 3 says this. There's this forerunner that's going to come. So at the beginning of Luke, you have, you have texts like this. And you, child, speaking of John the Baptist, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give to his people the knowledge of the salvation by the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. So you're going to prepare the Lord's way so that our feet will be guided into the way of peace. 
Later on, Luke 3, Isaiah 40 is quoted. The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every ravine will be filled. Every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight. The rough road smooth. And all flesh, all people will see the salvation of God. A little bit later, Jesus, speaking of John, says, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A prophet? Yes. I say to you, and one who's more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it's written, behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. So they know that the Lord is going to come and his way should be prepared before him because he's going to come along the way. He's going to reveal his glory. Well, guess what? Here's the shock of it all. The way for Jesus, for the Lord showing up, is the way to the cross. Surprise! The way from chapter 9 to chapter 19 is leading to Jerusalem. It's leading to the cross. It's not this shock and awe. God comes and throws down all the enemies and sets up his literal kingdom right then, right there. Boom. No, instead, the king is coming on the way to the cross to die to become the temple. And he's going to reveal his glory on the cross. The horrible shame of the cross is going to be the ultimate revelation of the glory of God. And he's going to make a new people that will worship him in spirit and in truth. And the temple will be obsolete. Okay? So that's kind of big picture what's going on here. And so you can imagine people in the temple getting a little bit nervous about the way Jesus is talking because they're going to lose everything. Okay, so look at Luke 20, verses 1 to 8. There's a little uh, outline in your bulletin if that's helpful for you. First point, pretense and pragmatism. So we'll read verses 1 to 8, and then I'll make a few comments. On one of the days, while Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, okay, which is great, he's bringing good news even while his detractors are plotting his destruction. The chief priests and the scribes with the elders confronted him. And they spoke, saying to him, Tell us, by what authority you are doing these things? Or who is the one who gave you this authority? So that would probably refer to some of the things he's claimed. Okay, remember the disciples, or the the crowd, the disciples, the people that were following him just at the end of last chapter. As he rides in on the donkey, they say, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And they say, you tell them to shut up. Do you hear what they're saying? And he says, no, they're, they're saying the right thing. If they're silent, the rocks will cry out. I am the king. So by what authority do you claim these things? And then he comes in, he cleanses the temple. He's up in tables. This is my father's house, my father's house. It's supposed to be a house of prayer. You're making it into a den of thieves. By what authority can you come into the temple and do this kind of thing? Who are you? Who do you think you are? So tell us by what authority you are doing these things, or who is the one who gave you this authority? Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you a question. And you tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? And then watch how they respond to this question. They reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? 
and we'll look stupid. But if we say from men, all the people will stone us to death because they're convinced that John was a prophet. So if we say from heaven, we're going to be shamed. If we say from men, we're going to get stoned. We need to think fast. So they answered that they did not know, which at one level is true and at another level is hypocritical. So the answer that they did not know, they made up something else. They, they came up with, quote-unquote, a third truth. At least they stated it as if it was true in order to get out of this bind. So they answered that they did not know where it came from, and Jesus said to them, nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Okay, so Jesus has come to the temple. Now he's teaching in the temple, and the, leaders, the temple leaders confront him. Authority is the key theme here. You can see it repeated several times, just that term itself. But the confrontation is an authority issue. Who's in charge here? Who has the authority here? Who has the right to it? On what basis do they have it? Okay, see, these temple leaders, they viewed themselves as divinely authorized to determine whether a prophet or a teacher was acting and speaking on God's authority or not. They thought that was their job. So here's a showdown in the temple, just like the showdown in the wilderness back when John came, John the Baptist. Remember that? See, they had already determined that he was not from God, so they did not go through with his baptism. Back in Luke 7.30, the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. Why didn't they get baptized by John? Well, they've got two visions of God's purpose and nature of God's plan in mind. There's John's and Jesus's. There's the temple leaders. Okay? So they are thinking, what do you think you're doing, John? You're proclaiming a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins outside, away from the temple? What right do you, do you have to set something like that up outside the temple? The temple is where that happens. It happens through us. Who do you think you are? We're not going to be baptized by you. We don't need to repent. So their authority is tied to tradition, family heritage, the permission of the Roman government. As one commentator writes, Joel Green, the, the chief priests, legal experts, and elders are representative of the Jerusalem Sanhedrin, okay, this ruling body, whose collective authority originates in the purity of their birthright, in the case of the priests, <clears throat> in their education, in the case of the scribes, and in their good fortune and having been born into Jerusalem families of high status, and above all, in their proximity and relationship to the Jerusalem temple. And Jesus is challenging all that. John challenged all of it. He was bypassing the temple. He was saying it's corrupt. It's not where God's purposes are going to get worked out. And so John's message in the, in the wilderness was an affront. It was an indictment on the temple. He was saying that the temple system wasn't necessary it was corrupt and it wasn't necessary to personally and collectively prepare for the Lord's coming, for being ready 
to receive him and to be right with him. So if the temple's no longer central, if it's no longer necessary, they're going to lose their jobs. They're going to lose their clout. They're going to lose their authority. They're going to lose their position. They're going to lose their status. So you can see why they were not real keen on John the baptizer. Okay, they probably figured that the beheading that he got was deserved. Back in Deuteronomy 18, false prophets, they deserve to be killed. See, maybe that was vindication right there. Divine vindication. He's a false prophet. And Jesus is doing the same thing. He is bypassing the temple. He is, he's already done it many times. He's declared and offered forgiveness unilaterally outside the temple. You've got to realize, put yourself in the shoes of, of a Jew in the first century, and they're like, how can you do that? Remember the paralytic man? Lowered through the roof with his friends, by his friends? Man, your sins are forgiven. What? How can he do that? Only God forgives sins. Exactly. Remember the prostitute who crashed the party, the dinner party, Simon the Pharisee? Your sins are forgiven. If that's the case, then what's the temple for anymore? See, the temple for them was just central. It, it provided the order of the world for them. Who's in, who's out, status, hierarchy, within all those categories. It, it flowed out of the temple. So if all this is true that Jesus is saying, then guess what? Jesus is saying that he's the center of the world. <laughs> that it's actually according to him. What you do with him that determines whether you are in the kingdom or not the status of each person before God. Hmm, exactly. Okay? And, and the scandal of it all is he's welcoming these just sinful people, you know, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, all kinds of riffraff. He's eating with them. God's eating with these people. Well, God, the Messiah, so-called, is eating with these people, which was so offensive to these self-righteous Pharisees and, and folks that just wanted to look down with contempt, moral superiority on, on everybody else. We're in, you're out. So if they don't do something quick, these leaders are going to lose everything. So they've got to discredit him. They need to show everyone who's hanging on his words that he's on the outside, that he doesn't have the authority he claims. They need to reassert their own authority. So they confront him and ask him a question. They asked him, but they didn't ask him in order to know the answer for themselves. They didn't really want to know the answer, except they wanted to know the answer so they could use his answer against him, right? They knew his claim. They asked in order to catch and accuse him on their turf where they might actually be able to pull it off in order to destroy him, like it says at the end of chapter 19. Okay, the source of Jesus' authority has already been revealed. Remember the baptism of Jesus? <laughs> the dove comes down. This is my beloved son. In you I'm well pleased. How about chapter 4 when Jesus is in his hometown? He grabs the scroll, Isaiah 61. He quotes it, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me he, because he anointed me. Anointing, king, prophet, priest? Yes. <laughs> anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set free those who are oppressed. There's your source of authority right there. How about the transfiguration? Not everybody was privy to that, but 
This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. So it had been revealed, but they didn't believe it. So now that he's on their turf in Jerusalem, they want to catch him on the horns of a dilemma and discredit him. If he claims divine authority, they've got him by blasphemy. If he denies divine authority, he cuts his own legs out from underneath him. They've got him, right? But instead of catching him on the horns of their dilemma that they set up, they get caught on the horns. Jesus counters their question with a question. Simple question, but with massive implications, okay? So by this question, Jesus is asking them to take a stand and make clear and public where they stand. Be honest. He basically says, be honest with me and I will be honest with you. Will you deal in truth? I know you're not asking me a sincere question, so why should I give you a, an answer to a question you really don't want the answer to? In fact, it doesn't matter how I answer the question. You already have your minds made up. You're not going to believe it. Whatever I say, you only want to use it against me. Okay, so here's the interesting thing. He asked that question. They don't challenge the options. Have you ever had this happen where somebody asks you a question and it's kind of like, that's an unfair setup. Either this or this. There's a middle road. And you kind of call them on that and say, time out, unfair question. Kind of like, you know, in its worst form, have you ever heard this? If I came up to some guy in the church and said, have you, and you overhear this, have you stopped beating your wife yet? Oh, man, he's just stuck either way. <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> okay, you're stuck. It's an unfair question. It's meant to catch you. They don't call him on that because he's not doing that. These really are the options. So instead, they set aside the issues of truth and reality and they answer pretentiously and pragmatically. They care about outcomes and effects, not truth and facts. That's called pragmatism. There is a generic kind of general kind of pragmatism that is just having to do with how does this stuff get done practically? Okay, that's a good thing. But there's also pragmatism that's a dangerous, horrible thing. It's called operating based on what works rather than what's right or true. You could call it utilitarianism. You could call it relativism. You could call it expedience. There's a political term, realpolitik. Okay, politics based on practical factors rather than on ethical objection, or, uh, ob objectives. Okay? And sadly, it's become the operational system that our political and economic world runs on in our country. Okay? So this is the stuff that goes to seed and housing bubbles burst. Okay? Banks fail. More and more moral ethical failures surface that sink companies. Okay? Relativism is this belief that there are no ultimate standards of right and wrong to which we all must bow so what we do is we just figure out what works and we operate based on that principle. Okay, we can all do what's right in our eyes as long as we don't get caught or as long as it works. Okay, we do this or that in order to get ahead. In fact, I wonder if this is the posture in your company 
Well, we're going to adopt ethical practices and transparency for the sake of our company morale and bottom line. (laughs) Anybody tracking with me there? You can actually, we're going to be transparent and we're going to be ethical because it really doesn't work if you don't. Like, look at all these companies that have blown up. We better not do that rather than doing it because it's right. Okay, so relativism and its operational arm called pragmatism eventually go to seed and multiply their bitter fruit all around. Okay, it's the ideology that the ends justify the means. Or when you opt for practicality over ethics, well, that just doesn't work. Churches do it in droves. There's nothing new under the sun. What's present in these chief priests, scribes, and elders is present in our culture. And guess what? It's present in our hearts. You and me. In sobering abundance. Okay? So for these leaders, they're only seeking to win this confrontation. But this isn't a game. They're making this a game. It's not a game. It doesn't... Who wins is not the point here. This is not a verbal chess match. This is an issue of truth. Is Jesus really who he says he is? That changes everything. Okay, so their question is pretentious. It's false. They don't really want to know the answer except to use it against him. Jesus calls their bluff, exposes them, and their reaction proves their pretense when they answer pragmatically, not dealing with truth and reality, but simply seeking to protect their skin. We don't want to die, get stoned by these people, mob, and protect their honor. They don't want to be shamed. They don't want to look stupid. So they give the answer that might work, at least to get them away from what they fear and protect what they desire. You see that? Desires and fears are driving them there. They don't even ask the question of what's true. And we should see how sad and how dangerous that place is. So let's look how Jesus responded. He gives them a parable with some prophecy. Verses 9 to 18. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey for a long time. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers so that they would give him some of the produce of the vineyard. But the vine growers, growers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send another slave. And they beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. Might even mean that they stripped him of what he did have. So not only did they not give him the produce, but they also may have stolen from him. And he proceeded to send a third. And this one also they wounded and cast out. The owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the vine growers saw him, they reasoned with one another, saying, this is the heir. You see, they they knew he was the son. They recognized the heir, and yet they didn't yield to the rightful owner of the vineyard and his worthy representative, the authority of the vineyard owner, the authority of the heir. 
This is the heir. Let's kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. They may have thought that the vineyard owner had passed away, and so the son had the rights to the vineyard. You know, it had been a long time. The old guy probably croaked. This is his heir. I mean, if he was still alive, he probably would have come, right? But he sent his son. So the son ha- if the son's out, nobody's, it's ours. So we can see their reasoning. So they threw him out, just like a demon, cast him out. Threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. You know, back then, you'd, you'd want to kill someone outside the city or outside a place like this because, you know, you'd want to avoid defiling your produce. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy these vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Okay, now the people are listening to this and they're tracking and they say, heaven forbid, may it never be. Which is basically what they're saying is, you mean you're you're taking away the, the kind of care of the vineyard away from these leaders and away from, are you talking about the Gentiles? No way, no way. It's going to be given to others. But Jesus looked at them and said, well, then what is this that is written? The stone which the builders, these leaders, rejected became the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone. You know, folks, speaking to the crowd, Jesus, you just sang a song when I was coming in on the donkey, and it was a song from Psalm 118 that said, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Do you know what it says later on in that same song? It says, The stone which the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone. If you believe I am he, the king who's coming, you need to believe what else is in that same prediction. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and on whoever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. So the parable is actually pretty obvious. It's pretty straightforward. For them and for us, this is the history of so many leaders in Israel. Okay, Israel's history is filled with the people going their own way, rejecting God as their God, worshiping idols. God sends his prophets, and they stick their fingers in their ears, and sometimes they abuse them. Sometimes they kick them out. Get out of here. We don't want to hear you. They kill them. The people of Israel, they were the vine of his planting, like Psalm 80 says that um, Greg read earlier. The leaders were the tenants. God often sent his prophets in order to instruct his people to call, and they were abused and rejected. So he's going to send his beloved son. Remember, baptism of Jesus, this is my beloved son. And what do they do when they see him? They reason together. Look back at verse 5. It's the exact same phrase. They reasoned together. And the warning to all who reject this cornerstone is sobering. Verse 18. So if you step back a little bit, Jesus' question in response to their question, Jesus' authority is the same as John's authority. It's coming from God, obviously. He was proclaimed, viewed to be the forerunner of the Messiah, a prophet in the spirit and power of Elijah. He's the forerunner of the coming Lord. If John's authority was merely, merely human, then he was a false prophet. He deserved to die. 
If he was true, then what he said about Jesus was true, that this is the mighty, the mightier, greater one. This is the Lord. So if you reject John, then it makes sense that you would reject Jesus. Reject John, the judgment was clear. Remember the ax is at the root of the tree? God can raise up children for Abraham from the stones. Reject Jesus, the judgment is clear. You'll be broken to pieces. Okay, so one more thing. We're in the temple. The authority of the temple and its leaders is in view. The use of Psalm 118, the cornerstone, it's huge. Okay, the implication is that Jesus is coming to create a new structure. A new building is going to be built. The temple is going to be torn down. The Romans are going to come, AD 70, destroy it, not one stone upon another. But Jesus said, destroy that. In three, ba- three days, I'll rebuild it because I'm the new temple. Not building with literal stones, but a spiritual house. Jesus being the cornerstone and everything else finding its place. Every other stone finding its place in relation to the cornerstone. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 2. Jesus is the temple and he will build the new temple, the new people. So Peter wrote, And coming to him, Jesus, as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. Okay, so in 1 to 8, Jesus refuses to answer their question. In the parable, he actually does answer their question. The authority comes from the vine owner, and he also warns the people of what's coming um, if they reject him. So Jesus makes clear that he'll be rejected by the leaders. This is the son. This is the heir. Let's kill him. But he's the beloved of the father. He indicts the leaders. He reveals his identity. He shows the source of his authority. He predicts his suffering and the fact that it's all according to plan. (laughs) All in that parable. To make a new temple, the place of God's presence with his people, the authority is in Jesus. And God's seal of approval is on him. So the leaders get this, sort of. Okay, they have some perception, but sadly not enough, and they've got more pretense. Look at verses 19 to 20. The chief priests and scribes tried to lay hands on him that very hour, but they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke this parable against him. So they knew that he spoke this parable against him, against them. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended more more pretension, to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statements so they could deliver him to the rule and authority of the governor. So ironically, they only understand it enough that it actually just hardens them all the more in their resolve to do the very thing the parable predicts. So it's ironic that they perceive that the parable is about them, but they don't perceive that the dire warning and consequences or for them if they don't turn. They're so committed to the, to the belief that Jesus is not God, not from God, that any warning he brings only deepens their rejection and their animosity toward him. So the parable, oddly enough, actually helps bring about its own fulfillment. 
Okay, so they think they have the authority. They plan to deliver him to the authorities. So what are we supposed to make of all this? Use that term realpolitik um, as just shorthand for this kind of pragmatism. Um, have you ever heard that term? I don't know. Has anybody ever heard that term, realpolitik? Oh, good, one. Um, in, in history... Um, like in political history, um, when it's talked about, sometimes it's, it's, in related, it's related to the issue of, you know what, the bottom line is the national interest by whatever means, even if we have to abuse and crush people for that purpose. Okay, so, so what are the politics, what are the dynamics that govern us in the church? Is it like the politics and the ideology that governs the culture? You know, it's easy for us to point the finger out there, you know, to Washington, to Wall Street, roll our eyes, wag our fingers, and tut, tut. But let's not hold this out at arm's length, okay? Do you calculate like this? Like I mentioned at the beginning, do you calculate in your head how to do damage control and not lie too much, but you certainly can't kill the truth because it would be too costly. I think we do this more than we realize. Are you ever manipulative in your speech? Why do you do that? It's because of the fears and desires that are leveraging on your soul. They said, we don't know. We don't know, you know, if it's from heaven or from, uh, from man. So do you ever throw truth to the wind for the same reasons? So let's say you're having a conversation with a non-Christian. They ask you, they're, they're kind of pushing back on what you're sharing. You're saying that Jesus is the only way? You really believe in, are you crazy? You believe in hell? Do you equivocate and backpedal and deflect for the sake of not burning a bridge? Now, do we want to be nasty with the truth? No. But are you afraid of the response? And do you desire maybe a truthless peace more than loving them with the truth? Do you get carried along like a jellyfish in the current of your corporate culture because you're afraid of the fallout? This, this really has a lot of teeth to it. <laughs> you know, this thing bites. I mean, I've felt it myself in some of the jobs that I've had, and I've talked to enough people to know that this can be a daily temptation and struggle because it's so much the culture of your corporation. And to go against it, why well, I, I can't. I'd lose my job. Because you're afraid and you desire. Okay? So it's interesting how what we say, how we respond when that leverage, is, leverage on the soul is happening, it's not checking our brains at the door. Do you know what's happening? It's actually a very serious employment of the mind for the sake of save my skin, save face ends. This is called taking matters into your own hands and not trusting in the Lord with all your heart and living true. Do you know what it is? It's actually a sort of mental prostitution. So at work, do you, 
Do you actually prostitute your mind in the service of the God of your desires and fears? Do you see the idolatry at work in that kind of pragmatics? Or do you marry the truth? By grace, you've, you're married to the truth. And you want to tell the truth winsomely and humbly, but you have to tell the truth and you have to let the chips fall. Our desires and fears will govern what we say. The leaders in Luke 20, they were blinded by their agenda, okay? And that agenda was set by their desires and their fears. And so they stopped being concerned with what was true. And they were more concerned with what would work, what would protect them and give them what they wanted. So your mind will be in league with your passions and your desires and your fears. So what are your passions and your desires and fears? Which are the big ones that win, that rule on a daily, weekly basis? They will dictate whether or not you live true or pragmatically. Okay, so here's the good news. <laughs> I think we probably should feel, I would imagine, pretty, um, maybe even overwhelmed if, if we are honest with ourselves and see how often we do this. And then you say, how, how do you do that? How do you live like that? Well, guess what? Jesus actually died to make us true. His grace is actually strong enough to get down in and reform and reshape the fears and the desires such that you would be governed by those things and be enabled in the moment, regardless of what the consequences might be, to be true and to tell the truth. Because here's the thing. Those things that you really want, what if you wanted more than anything else the glory of God? You wanted Him to be glorified. You wanted to reflect His glory clearly and well. You wanted to stand with the truth. You wanted to say, whatever happens, I know that you can't take my God from me. And I, would, I so fear not trusting him so much more than I fear what you might do to me because I know who I am and because I know whose I am and because I know that because of the gospel, I don't have to shift and dance and play the game. If I've made a mistake, I can just say it because I already know I'm a sinner saved by grace. If I try to maintain an image of self-righteousness or whatever in my own steam, it's, it's going to crumble pretty quickly. And I'm often going to have to scramble to try to keep it up. But do you see how the gospel goes down in and reshapes, it can reshape our fears and our desires where what we really want is God to be glorified, Christ to be exalted. And that can happen whether you're promoted or whether you're fired. And you just leave the results to to God. And the things that you fear, I, I'm just going in the realm of work, but there's every other realm. It applies. So then new desires, new fears, causes those other fears and desires to be shrunk down to size or jettisoned altogether. 
And the gospel, the truth sets you free. Do you see how these guys were enslaved to their agenda? And it blinded them to the truth. And instead, the gospel can make us true and transform us, giving us new passions, new desires, and help us, enable us to live authentically and fearlessly in the truth, with the truth, telling the truth, pointing people to the truth. Jesus said you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. It sets you free to live true, honest with yourself, honest with God, honest with others, and to speak the truth. Jesus died to make us authentic and fearless with the truth. So I hope that we see these leaders, we see their pragmatic dance, we see the danger of it, we see the seeds of it in our own hearts, and we cry out to God for his grace to free us from those idolatrous desires and fears that we would be continually formed and shaped by his grace and by his gospel, that we would have new fears and new desires that would enable us to live free and true and authentically. Let's pray. Lord, reshape us by your grace that we would conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of the one who is true and who is the truth and whose truth will set us free. Amen.